So what would you think if you came to a conference like this one and the speaker like this one said to you that you should close your Bibles? That would be super strange. I've never done that before, but I'm going to say that. You should close your Bibles. Now, you might have red flags up. I would have red flags up. For, I've been preaching the Bible for 30 years, and every single sermon I've ever preached, ever, even last Sunday, I said, open your Bibles. If anybody said, close your Bibles, I would think this guy is going to be some kind of false teacher. I don't want to hear what they have to say. And yet today, for shock value to get your attention... For our topic, I want you to close your Bibles or turn your phone off so you can't see a Bible. You're thinking hopefully by now, hmm, should I leave? Should I protest? Should I rush the stage? Who is this guy that Andy knows? Well, I want you to close your Bible because what we're going to talk about, my assignment is to talk about something that happens before Genesis 1. And so I can't say, please open your Bible to pre-Genesis. I don't think there's such a thing as pre-Genesis except like in comic books. There's no such thing. So what we're going to do is talk about something that's, that comes before Genesis 1, and yet it's patently biblical. We are going to look at our Bibles, so it'll be okay. Patently biblical, but it happens before Genesis 1. What could that be? Well, what that is, is something called the Pactum Salutis. And so Andy has asked me to talk about the Pactum Salutis, God's faithfulness to himself in something in Latin that's called the Pactum Salutis. And you might be thinking, the Pactum Salutis? You might might think to yourself, I don't know what the Pactum Salutis is. And if that's you, you came to the right place. I'm going to help you. If you know what it is, I think you came to the right place because I hope I'm going to help you understand it better as it relates to God's faithfulness to himself. And so my outline this morning is going to be to answer the question, three, three important questions about the Pactum Salutis. Number one, what is it? Number two, where is it taught in the Bible? And number three, why does it matter to us? So what is it? Where is it in the Bible? And why does it matter? Pretty straightforward will be easy to follow, the pactum salutis. Let's go ahead and start with that first question. What is the pactum salutis? Or in shorthand, in theology, sometimes we just call it the pactum. So it's more than just a great podcast that you should listen to. It's a great name for a great theological reality, so we borrowed it for a podcast name. The Pactum, the Pactum Salutis. What in the world is that? It's also known as, maybe you've heard, The covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption is the pactum salutis. This pactum salutis is the covenant of redemption. I've been asked to talk about it as it relates to God's faithfulness. Well, besides being a splendid reality, besides being perhaps the greatest thing you will ever think about, the covenant of redemption Besides that, maybe we should start super basically. Uh, I preach at a church where there are lots of mature Christians. There are lots of immature Christians. There are people who aren't Christians and all everything in between. And so I always like to aim for everybody at one point in time or another. And so pactum means covenant. So covenant means formal agreement. 
So if we're going to talk about the covenant of redemption, there's this formal agreement about redemption. And by redemption, we mean being set free from sin and its penalty, ultimately its power. We mean salvation. And so when theologians talk about the covenant of redemption, here's what they mean. There is this plan for redemption, for salvation. And this plan is part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before time begins as we know it, pre-Genesis 1, covenanting, formally agreeing to redeem sinners. So salvation didn't start when you believed, if you will. It didn't start when you heard the gospel. It didn't start in our lifetime. It didn't start in the first century. Oh no, salvation in its plan, in its decree, in its purpose, purposed by the triune God, happened in the past, before time as we know it, when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit formally, not casually, formally agreed, they covenanted. The Father would choose, the Son would redeem, the Spirit would apply, if you will. That's what we mean when we say the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. It's exciting stuff. It's beyond my pay grade for sure. So let me offer you some more textbook kinds of definitions, still asking the question, what is the pactum? What is the covenant of redemption? Well, Dave Van Drunen, my friend, so clearly puts it this way. The covenant of redemption describes an eternal intra-Trinitarian covenant by which the divine persons counseled together to ordain the plan of salvation to be accomplished in the coming of the Son and the sending of the Spirit. It's a pretty good definition. In fact, it's a great definition. Now, I'll give you another definition from Michael Horton saying essentially the same thing. So we've got a Presbyterian, now we're going to have a Reformed guy, and then we'll, then we'll have a Baptist because we want to make everyone happy. Sounds like a joke setup, right? What happens? There's a Reformed guy and a Presbyterian and a Baptist, and they walk into a bar. Well, the Baptist wouldn't go, but never mind. <laughs> Here's Mike Horton. Covenant, the covenant of redemption, also pactum salutis, or the covenant of peace, or the council of peace, is that covenant entered into by the persons of the Trinity in the councils of eternity with the Son mediating its benefits to the elect. This covenant is the basis for all of God's purposes. Big deal. In nature and history, it is the foundation and efficacy of the covenant of grace, salvation. And then we'll give a token Baptist. Here's Matthew Barrett. The covenant of redemption is between the persons of the Trinity. In other words, it is intra-Trinitarian. They're always using that. And since our triune God is timelessly eternal, so too must be the covenant of redemption. The Son enters into a covenant with the Father to be the mediator of God's people. The Son brings the covenant to fruition by means of his incarnation. Hence, it is the covenant of redemption The son, our covenant surety or guarantor, fulfilling the covenant by redeeming sinners by his blood, Ephesians 1, 7, far from some old contract or cold contract, the son voluntarily accepts the stipulations of the covenant out of his love for the father. The covenant of redemption, the pactum salutis, I say, oh, I love this doctrine. I love this reality. 
I say it's beyond my pay grade because who could understand the, the eternal intra-Trinitarian counsel of the Lord before the foundation of the world? Well, I think none of us can understand it fully because we're not God. And yet the Bible talks about this reality actually in some detail. And so what we're going to do now is move forward and talk about where it's in the Bible. Oh, before we do that, some of you might be thinking, what does this have to do with the faithfulness issue? This is a conference on faithfulness. What would the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, have to do with my faithfulness? Well, first and foremost, it's actually not about your faithfulness until it is, and we'll get to that. First and foremost, it's about God's faithfulness to himself, which is what Andy wanted me to talk about, that God is faithful to himself first and foremost, that the triune God covenanted to do something, and most certainly he's faithful to himself, the ultimate faithfulness. I mean, the, the, most, the most faithful one of all time, scratch that, the most faithful one, period, because it's actually before time that this happens, is none other than our great, unfathomable triune God. Of course, he's going to be faithful to himself. And then we will do sort of like Mike did, talk about our response and how it motivates our faithfulness, but we'll get to that later, why it matters so much to us. But for now, I don't want to be that person who says, don't just stand there, do something. I want to say, don't just do something, stand there. Stand there in awe. Stand there in awe with your jaw dropped, mouth wide open, speechless. What an amazing reality to know about God before time even began, that he covenanted with himself to redeem and elect humanity. What an amazing, astounding, staggering to the mind reality, ultimate faithfulness. Number two, second important question about the pactum, the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption. Number two, where is it taught in the Bible? Well, first of all, I would want you to know that it's not in the Bible, it's not biblical, if this is how you determine whether or not things are biblical. You get your computer out and you get the keyboard out or, or on your phone and you have a Bible program and you do a word search. Covenant of redemption. Search. New American Standard, King James, New King James, ESV, and on and on the list goes. If you ever find a translation that says covenant of redemption in it, I, tell me. You won't find it. So if that's how you determine whether or not something's biblical via what I like to call sola word searcha, so if you do theology with sola word searcha, you're going to be anti-Trinitarian. You're not going to believe in important doctrines like the hypostatic union either, like that Jesus is, is God and man at the same time. Those are biblical doctrines, but you don't find them through sola word searcha. What we do is we look at the data of scripture, and then we create categories and we say, Trinity. One eternal God always existing as God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God, complicated, yes. Biblical, yes. Jesus is God, true? True. Jesus is a genuine human being, true? 
Absolutely. Theological shorthand, Christians have always believed that. Theological shorthand, they called the, the, what did I just call it? The hypostatic union. That's right. I need a little bit more coffee. The hy- so labels, the pactum salutis is a label supported by the biblical data. How about Ephesians 1? If you have a Bible, now I can say it, I feel like a Christian preacher. Now I feel better. If you have a Bible, please turn it on. Uh, if you have a Bible, please open it. We're going to look at Ephesians 1. And, and Ephesians 1 is a great place to start because it's, it's in the deep end of the pactum pool. Okay, so if you're not ready for the deep end, put your floaters on, uh, on your arms or whatever you need to do theologically, because we're, we're going to go for the big one first and then look at supporting, supporting texts. So in Ephesians chapter one, we're going to see the, the elements, if you will. So as we read, we'll look at most of it, not all of it. As we do this deep dive, be looking for things, be listening for things like the, the things you learned about when you were young. Look for the who. The what, the where, the why, and those kinds of things. Because, and the, if I didn't cover when, when, because we're going to have those kinds of questions about the pactum answered in Ephesians 1. Here we go. Let's go to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We're looking for Trinity. Now we have the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have the second person of the Trinity. We'll shortly see the Holy Spirit as well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. Oh, we have this choosing Okay, that's part of the pactum, the covenant of redemption. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ah, pre-Genesis 1, there we have that, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us, more pactum emphasis. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. There is a will, there is a decree, there is this divine purposing and it says to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse seven is important. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will. Notice here, according to his purpose. There's a plan. This is going to happen even though it's planned ahead of time. His purpose which he set forth in Christ. So notice all of this happens in time. This does, is, is going to happen in time, but it is decreed back in verse four before the foundation of the world to happen in time. Verse 10 says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were to were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit. So we do have father, son, and spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So much great stuff. For the sake of time, we are going to drop down ever so rudely to verse 20. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, also by divine decree, according to the intra-Trinitarian covenant, resurrection too, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, and, and power, and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I need a breath. One long run-on sentence in the Greek text too. We've added some periods. Bursting with praise, but I'm getting ahead of myself when it comes to how should we respond? Now, hopefully you're looking carefully. The triune God, that's the who. Redemption, sure redemption, according to divine decree. That's the what. Before the foundation of the world to be accomplished in time, at the right time, in the fullness of time, affecting not only this time, but also the one to come. That's the when. In the heavenly places, affecting those on earth and beyond. That's the where. To the praise of his glorious grace, ultimately, ultimately, and for our good, secondarily, but importantly, that's the why. By the choosing of the Father, by the redeeming work of the Son, and by the applying work of the Spirit. All actually working together, yes, but they're designated that way. That's the how. So in fact, in Ephesians 1, we have the necessary components. We have the necessary elements, not via sola word searcha, but when you say, do we see the covenant of redemption as defined as the eternal, yes, intra-Trinitarian, yes, covenant, yes, by which the divine persons counseled together, yes, to ordain the plan of salvation, yes, to be accomplished in the coming of the Son and the sending of the Spirit, yes, 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 and yes. It is an intra-Trinitarian agreement, which is a covenant to redeem the elect. So it looks like a covenant. It sounds like a covenant. If it could smell, it would smell like a covenant. And I would suggest to you, so we would be out of our theological minds to say that it's not. It's patently biblical. It's clear. It's straightforward. I think I would have to have an agenda to say, well, it's actually not biblical. Maybe I'd say that because I didn't know about it before. I was just ignorant of it. Maybe I would have a kind of an agenda against it for some other reasons, which we'll talk about. But it sure seems like the covenant of redemption is biblical and all we need is Ephesians chapter one. But before we close in prayer, <laughs> even though I think we could, before we do that, I, what I wanna do now is say, okay, that's, that's my favorite text. I could believe it just because of that. Let's look at some supporting texts ever so quickly that would complement uh, this reality of an intra-Trinitarian before time begins, amazing covenant for our redemption by our great triune God. I'd like to look at Luke 22 ever so briefly. I'd like to survey what is recorded in John's gospel account and then maybe look at a couple of other passages and we'll edit along the way lest we be here through Andy's session at 2 p.m. 
and I think we all want lunch. Luke 22 is a fascinating one because Luke 22 is more of, when you're talking about the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, God's faithfulness to himself, it's more of a, a significant one when it comes to history. So if you've heard of Theodore Beza, don't need a show of hands, but he's an important uh, player when it comes to the Protestant Reformation. Beza follows Calvin. Beza's mentored by Calvin. And so he comes after Calvin and things are exciting when it comes to the Protestant Reformation. And we're trying to figure out which doctrines are biblical, which doctrines aren't biblical, where was Rome right, where was Rome wrong. And we're trying to sort things out. And Beza is known for being brave and a leader in these things, but he's actually known in history in the history of the Reformation, for his commitment to the Greek New Testament, original languages. And so he championed that cause. Beza was one who said, okay, Latin Vulgate. Why? Since the Bible wasn't written in Latin, since the New Testament wasn't written in Latin, Latin's a great language, great language for philosophy, great language for academics, and being able to communicate with people who natively speak different languages. But the, the Latin Vulgate, well, that's kind of strange that we have the New Testament in Greek, so let's roll our sleeves up, let's go back to the original text, let's do original text exegesis and check our theology and maybe develop our theology and see where it needs uh, refinement and things like that. And Luke 22 was a significant one for Theodore Beza when it comes to the pactum salutis. He believed it was true already, but then he believed it all the more from other passages like Luke 22. And so let's go ahead and see what it says. I'm reading from the ESV translation. Uh, it says in Luke 22, 29, Quoting Jesus, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Sounds good, sounds important. It is, it's significant. And, and Beza notes that the Greek word translated assign in the ESV, well, he didn't have an ESV, but you get the idea. That, that, that word assign used two different times is a covenant word. And it's used in covenant contexts with covenantal decrees. The Greek word is D-A-D-A-D-A-T-I-T-H-A-M-E. D-I-A-T-I-T-H-A-M-I. Don't need to know that to go to heaven. Praise the Lord. But he notes that that's the word, and, and it's used in like Acts 3.25 and Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16, in a, in a covenantal context with covenantal decrees. So you could translate the word, therefore, in, our, in English for us, I covenant to you as my father covenanted to me a kingdom. The idea is this, and I think it's pretty profound. The idea is I, so this is an interpretive translation in light of that word. I covenantally decree to you a kingdom, Jesus says to his disciples. This is going to happen no matter what. By covenantal decree, you're going to be members of my kingdom. It's unstoppable. I covenantally decree to you a kingdom as my father. So there's similarity. As my father covenantally decreed to me a kingdom. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And when did the covenantal decree happen between father and son? It happened before the son was ever incarnate. Pre-Genesis 1. He's the Messiah king by covenantal decree. And this kingdom is likewise the believer's kingdom by covenantal decree. 
Now, I wouldn't believe maybe the covenant of redemption based upon that only text. That's why we started in Ephesians 1. But you do see clearly that the father-son relationship is a covenantal kind of relationship in that text based upon original languages. I like bringing that one up because sometimes people say, oh, this, you know, this theology stuff and uh, covenant theology seems rather speculative and I just like to study the original languages. Well, actually, we might want to study the original languages like Beza and say, it's actually more biblical than we even thought and we thought it was biblical before. John's gospel account is loaded with this kind of terminology. Again, we'd be here all day to try to cover it. But Jesus repeatedly speaks of coming to do a work. He comes into this world and he comes into this world to do a work and it's a work given to him by his father to accomplish. Okay, so he's under obligation, if you will. Willing, yes. Love relationship, yes. But he comes here on task to do something that he was commissioned to do. Under covenantal obligation, he sent his son according to the pactum. John 4, John 5, and following John 6. John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food, my very existence is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That, that sounds like he was sent here to do something that he had to do and it was purposed and planned to accomplish a certain thing. Ah, it is. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me, right? On a rescue mission to do something and he had to do it. It's, it's, con, it's, it's formal, it's covenantal. 5.36, for the works that the father has given me to accomplish. And he goes on to say, the father has sent me and we're not left to wonder, wonder what he sent him to do, to redeem elect sinners and the Holy Spirit would apply the work of the son and regenerate to create faith. It's all according to plan. It's all according to the intra-Trinitarian, atemporal, outside of time, covenant of redemption. And certainly he's going to be faithful. 543, I have come in my father's name. He is the one. John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's gonna work. The Spirit's gonna do his part to, to have them come. Verse 38, for, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And he goes on to talk about it so wonderfully, so splendidly. It all reflects theologically what we all know to be the pactum the pactum salutis, according to decree, according to purpose, according to plan, according to covenant. John 17 is, is rather extraordinary as well. John 10, in John chapter 10, this charge I've received from my father. I'm sending you to do this. You're under obligation. John 17 says in verse one, in that high priestly prayer, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's pactum talk. That's Ephesians one kind of talk. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God of Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth. Listen to this. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had 
with you before the world existed. Ah, it's atemporal, like the theologians like to say. The mission was to save them through his obedience to the will of the Father. The day after this, what does Jesus say on the cross in those famous words when it's all done? It is finished. What is finished? The work you gave me to do. I did what you sent me to do. I was successful. I was the covenant surety, to use old fancy language. I was the guarantor. I did the obeying as their representative. Mission accomplished. The work is done according to decree, purpose, plan, oh, better yet, covenant. I did what I needed to do. In a very helpful little book, if this is new to you, the best one I would recommend to you called Sacred Bond by Michael Brown and Zach Keel summarizing these things. They say this, taken together. So it's, I would never come to this conclusion if I was just looking up verses willy-nilly nitpicking or, or just picking here and picking there. It doesn't, how do you get covenant in that? Taken together, Jesus' comments in John's gospel about the work he came to accomplish reveal mutual, pre, a pre, mutual predetermined plan between the Father and the Son made in eternity past. I think they're right. I think they're right. Hebrews chapter seven is the next one I'll look at ever so briefly. Then Isaiah 53, we have to see it in Isaiah 53, and then we'd better move on and start talking about why this matters so much. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 21. It says, but this one was made a high priest with an oath. You have oaths in covenantal relationships. By the one who said to him, now he's quoting Psalm 110, so we could go there, but we're not. So we're getting two for one. The Lord has sworn, that, that's covenantal talk, oath talk. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The fact that Yahweh swears an oath to do this points clearly to a covenantal kind of relationship. And we know all about it because we know Ephesians chapter one. We can say, oh, this supports that. And then how about Isaiah 53? If you'd look there with me, we start seeing the connections. When I was a college pastor, pastoring in Southern California during seminary, I had one student who was, I don't remember if she was a UCLA student or a USC student, but she left one day in tears. And so my wife, Molly, and I stepped outside and, you know, what, what's, what's going on? What's happening? And she said, I'm coming here and I'm learning the Bible and I'm learning about God from the Bible. And it's corrupting my view of Christianity. And I have to tell you that we tried to be sweet and kind and gentle with her appropriately, but in my heart of hearts, I was saying, yes. Because she was coming out of a, a false understanding of Christianity. And so our prayer was when we drove home that day is, is that she would never be able to unsee it 
that she'd seen authentic, genuine, biblical doctrines from the text of scripture, and it was twisting. She may have used the word perverting, corrupting her view of God. And you know what? This, this kind of thing does that in a good and sanctified way. Now that I've seen it, I can't unsee it. And now I start to see it everywhere. This unique, formal relationship between father, son, and yes, spirit. And yes, redemption is purposed. It is planned before time begins. And it's all about the unfolding drama. And now I see it in the New Testament. Now I see it in the Old Testament. You you can't unsee it. And so I hope to the degree it's necessary, we're all having our view of God and how he works and the work of Christ maybe we shouldn't say corrupted, um, edified would be better because I, I, can't, I can't unsee this stuff and I don't want to unsee this stuff. Isaiah 53, we know that the classic substitutionary atonement, wonderful, extraordinary verse, verse five, but we should probably start there where it says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. We know this is referencing Jesus prophetically because of the way it's used in the New Testament so many times. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We know this and appropriately so, and I'm so glad that we do it. But when we start looking for it, We see he comes as the suffering, what do we say? Starts with an S, the suffering servant. Oh, guess what you have in covenantal relationships in the ancient world? Servants, covenant servants. I'll I'll never read the word servant in Isaiah without thinking in terms of formal relationship, covenantal servant. Israel was a servant and they weren't faithful, but they were supposed to do the right thing. Jesus is the ultimate servant who is faithful as covenant head, federal head, if you will, formal representative. Oh, how about verse 15, How about verse 10 then? Why did verse five happen? Well, verse 10 helps us. Yet it was the will of the Lord. Oh, think Ephesians 1. Think plan, decree, covenant. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is all purpose. This is supposed to happen for an accomplishment, he has put him to grief. God has done this. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering, excuse me, his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Oh, what happened on Calvary, Calvary, as awful and horrific as it was, and though the sinners who put him there are called to account, like in the book of Acts, it wasn't by happenstance. It was according to the will of God that that would happen because there's a greater purpose. It's this intra-Trinitarian faithfulness of God to himself planned to redeem. If you drop down then to verse 11 and, and read it, you'll see it even connecting more. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, think covenant servant, my Servant, my loyal, faithful covenant servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
And then verse 12, keep going. It's wonderful. 12, how about the therefore in verse 12? Therefore, because he was the faithful servant, the faithful covenant representative, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Notice he will divide with him the portion. This is spoils of war talk in the ancient world. Because of loyalty, because he's the faithful servant, you know what's going to happen? He's going to be rewarded. And all he represents will be rewarded. Oh, the faithful covenant servant is Jesus. You'd have to be working super hard. Maybe you're trying to get a PhD and missing the point to read the Isaiah text in light of covenant servant theme without thinking in terms of he's the faithful one who accomplishes and it's not only to his benefit exalted above every name, but he also brings spoils, if you will. He also brings blessings to those he represents. That's Isaiah 53. And maybe it's also intriguing, I can't help myself to reach back a little bit to chapter 42. If we reach back to 42, and the last time I checked, Isaiah 42 is before 53. Um, But it's building, 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 building. And so I like surveying, going back and seeing, you know, this has been building and going somewhere on purpose. It's right to read 53 covenantally, because of what's come before. So if you look at chapter 42, in verse one, behold my servant who I uphold my chosen. I'm gonna say that's covenant talk. You might think I'm not totally convinced yet. I hope that's not the case, but you might be that person. I I know people like that. I pastor people like that. Then if we keep moving down to verse six, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. Well, you can even find that in word searches. (laughs) There it is. He's the one who's given as the covenant. It's no wonder that we have the new covenant in his blood. It's because of this. It's because of who he is as the suffering servant. But we, gotta, we, we need to carry all that we've learned in the chapters before if we're gonna understand chapter 53 rightly. The servant is the covenant servant. It even says so. Well, I wanna say, have I convinced you at least somewhat that it's a biblical doctrine and not just something that Michael Horton made up or Matthew Barrett made up? or Hermann Witsius made up? Well, I hope so. Um, Examine the scriptures carefully to see if these things are so. We could go to Hebrews chapter 10, verses five to seven. Uh, We won't for the sake of time, but it quotes Psalm 40. And maybe I'll wrap up this section before we talk about why this matters. I wanna put a nice bow on it. And so I will quote someone else. Uh, And here's Charles Hodge about this issue. When one person assigns a stipulated work to another person, with the promise of a reward upon the condition of the performance of that work, there is a, starts with a C, covenant. Nothing can be plainer than that. All this is true in relation to the father and the son. The father gave the son a work to do. He sent him into the world to perform it. 
and promised him a great reward when the work was accomplished. Such is the constant representation of the scriptures. We have, therefore, the contracting parties, the promise, and the condition. These are the essential elements of a, starts with a C, a covenant. Such being the representation of scripture, such must be the truth to which we are bound to adhere. I agree with Charles Hodge. If it looks like a duck, sounds like a duck, and walks like a duck, it's probably not a hippo. Covenant of redemption. Intra-Trinitarian. Atemporal. You don't have to use all those fancy words. But maybe it helps us to think through just how how special it is and how unique it is and, and how extraordinary it is. God's faithfulness to himself? What? Indeed, staggering to the mind. Third question. What is so important about the Pactum Salutis? Why does it matter? And here in the land of, I grew up watching David Letterman, so I'm in New York City, so I have a top 10 list. So we're gonna do a quick top 10 list. I hope that doesn't offend you by me saying that, but we're not gonna do stupid human tricks Uh, though we used to do that as a family growing up. We're going to do a top 10 list of sorts. Why does this matter? There's all kinds of answers. So I'll just offer you 10, some rather quickly. The first reason this matters is simply because it's amazing. It's just just an amazing reality. I want to go back to don't just stand there, do something. No, don't just do something, just stand there. This is just an amazing reality that we get to know about it. That that we actually have the curtain pulled back by divine inspiration to know something about what God was doing before he created the world? This is staggering to the mind. It's amazing in and of itself. Perfect vowing of perfect fidelity and loyalty. I get more and more nervous the longer I'm married, the more weddings I officiate. And the more creative the bride and groom become in making their solemn covenant and their oath before witnesses, we exchange tokens of our swearing oaths, covenants. And then we swear before God and witnesses, I promise, I covenant to be a perfect husband. And I'm like, say what? Well-meaning, no doubt, but I'm encouraging couples more and more, keep it lean. (laughs) (laughs) right? All couples should write marriage books before they're married because they're experts, right? Just like you should write parenting books before you have kids because you know everything. And then you know nothing. Be careful. Well, how about this? The perfect, flawless fidelity. God in and of himself. Perfectly so. Perfect vowing perfect fidelity, perfect loyalty. We need to know about this. There was a man named J.I. Packer who wrote a book called Knowing God. I think it's a good book. He wrote some not so good books. But from the guy who wrote the book, Knowing God, he says, the full reality of God and God's work are not adequately grasped till the covenant of redemption occupies its proper place in our minds. 
How in the world are we going to know who God is if we don't know he's triune? How in the world are we going to know who, who he is in, in acting in this world unless we know that everything he did in this world has to do with his decree, his covenantal decree before the foundation of the world? That's pretty basic. But I, I know lots of Christians who don't believe in the covenant of redemption. They think it's speculative. Can we know who God is beyond very much? It doesn't seem so. Another, this is number two now on why this is so important. It's important because apart from the covenant of redemption, listen to this one carefully, you'll be a Scrooge. Now I say that for effect because I, I think you probably will be a Scrooge, but I think of Christmas. There is no Christmas apart from the covenant of redemption. So we're functional theological Scrooges if we don't believe in the covenant of redemption because there's no incarnation. Jesus doesn't come to earth. He's not born into this world apart from the covenant of redemption because he doesn't need to be sent. So I said that one just to be a little bit lighthearted, but it's true. Number three, top 10 list on why we should be motivated about the covenant of redemption by the covenant of redemption. And that is the covenant of redemption matters because it's vital to your redemption, right? You don't get redeemed apart from the pactum. You don't get saved apart from the pactum. You don't get delivered from your sin and misery, guaranteed justification, sanctification, glorification, all of those important nations. None of them are yours apart from God's faithfulness to himself, divine covenantal decree. And so it makes me love the pactum. It makes me want to know more about it. Jesus said in John 6, 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing. He loses nothing. He loses no one is really what he's getting at because he's the loyal covenant servant. He accomplishes what he's sent to do. He is totally faithful, completely faithful in all of it. And number four relates to that. The covenant of redemption matters because it's vital to your assurance. I'm sure of my salvation for different reasons, different true biblical reasons, but the ultimate reason you can be sure of your salvation is because of the pactum. Your assurance didn't start the day you believed, although you can have assurance from believing. Bible teaches that. Uh, your assurance didn't start there, though. Your assurance, uh, your assurance didn't start in the first century when Jesus died on the cross, though absolutely that's true, and I want to hear it is finished. That's true. But really, if we go and look at the thing behind the thing, behind the thing, <laughs> it's the covenant of redemption. Assurance. He would lose none of them. Rescue mission. I will redeem those you've chosen. That's the verbiage in Ephesians 1. Talk about assurance of salvation. It is glorious. It is grand. It is extraordinary. Number five on the top 10 list on why this matters. The covenant of redemption matters because it induces praise. It induces praise. Paul, when I read Ephesians 1, how is it that you could be so full throttle and passionate in your praise? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he just goes on and on and on and on, falling over himself in a perfectly sanctified way under divine inspiration. How could you be so passionate about your praise? And you know his answer? I believe in covenant theology. <laughs> That's his answer. I'm not a Scrooge, theologically. I believe in the pactum. I believe in the pactum salutis. 
I, I, I believe it with all my heart and, and I know it's right and biblical and so therefore it induces praise. If Paul didn't believe in the pactum, I think his praise would be mediocre at best. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for the example and the model to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. That's, that, that's what he keeps emphasizing. This is extraordinary. This is amazing. Number six on our top 10 list and why this is important, the covenant of redemption matters and is important. Number six, because of the consummation. Because of the consummation, the end, when all things are made right on this earth that are wrong, we know all of those things eventually will be made right that are wrong. No more tears, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more injustice. That day is coming and that day is coming and it is sure because of what Christ has already done. Read Colossians. But it's actually Sure, because of what he's already done, because of what he already has done actually finds its origin pre-Genesis. Ephesians 1.10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, think consummation, to unite all things, all things in conflict, all things broken, all things messy, to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So everything cosmically will be restored, made right, fixed according to the work of Christ. Oh, but it's not only according to the work of Christ on earth as far as its origin. The origin of Christ's work on earth goes atemporally, intra-Trinitarianly. It's amazing. Number seven on our top 10 list of why this is exciting, why this is inspiring why it's important. The covenant of redemption, redemption matters because it is our theological heritage. It's our theological heritage to believe in the covenant of redemption. I don't think Matthew Barrett is wrong in saying the covenant of redemption is a fundamental pillar of reformed orthodoxy. So I, I, I'm a reformed Christian. I, I believe in the reformation. That's my heritage. I, I like reformed theology. Well, okay, I'm glad you like the Pactum Salutis. It's baked in the cake. It's part of the deal. It's who we are. You say, well, I'm reformed, but I don't like the Pactum. What? It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. Our confessional standards in the reformed tradition have a unified support for the covenant of redemption. Substantively, by and large, we see it in the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, the Westminster Confession, and then more explicitly, the Savoy Declaration, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. If you want to, so confessional heritage is that. That's most significant when it comes to our history and our past. How has the Holy Spirit led believers to come to conclusions about things theological? Well, guess what they've concluded? Looks like a duck, walks like a duck, sounds like a duck, it must be a duck. We have the elements, you can call it different things, you can call it the pactum, you can call it the pactum salutis, you can call it the covenant of peace, you can call it the covenant of redemption, it's there. Our confessional heritage shows it is. Individuals as well, from Charles Hodge to B.B. Warfield to Gerhardus Voss to Abraham Kuyper to Hermann Bovink to the list goes on and on. And I'm going to skip about 12 names. <laughs> My friend John Fesco even will say, though the label Pactum Salutis is of more re recent origin, if you look for the components, if you look for it as an undeveloped doctrine, but the signs are there, 
he would say this. It's actually an ancient and Catholic doctrine, lowercase c. It doesn't just show itself, in other words, what he means at the Reformation. Christians have been thinking about this before Martin Luther because they've had Ephesians 1 in their Bibles. It's our doctrine. It's our historic doctrine. Number eight, top 10 list, covenant of redemption matters because it regulates our evangelism and produces faithfulness. Just one text on this. Uh, it was on my mind because I preached Acts 13, 48 last week. As many as were appointed to eternal life, what? Believed. As many as were appointed unto eternal life when they evangelized in Acts 13, believed. When would they have been appointed unto eternal life? Five minutes before they heard the gospel? No, nobody thinks that. They were appointed unto eternal life. We know because we're looking at all of the different pieces. They were appointed unto eternal life before Genesis 1. And so the apostle Paul and the other apostles could preach the gospel even when they're persecuted, even when people don't like to hear it, and when people do like to hear it, they're going to stick to the script, if you will, preaching Christ, preaching Christ, preaching Christ, preaching Christ, because they know about the pactum because they know that all those who've been appointed unto eternal life by God to be redeemed by the Son, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, will in fact believe. So it helps us in our practice and in our evangelism. We don't have to tinker with the gospel because the pactum is a reality. Verse nine, or number nine on my list of top 10, the covenant of redemption matters because it's attacked. It matters to me. If people aren't fighting about something, a lot of times I don't care about it. Let sleeping dogs lie. But when it's being attacked and it's so important, so critical, it matters to everything on planet earth, then, you know, I, I want to pay attention. I want, I want to be a defender of sound doctrine, not just a promoter. Unitari Unitarians don't like it because, well, they're Unitarians. <laughs> they're not supernaturalists. It makes sense. They don't believe it. They're, they're anti-Trinitarian. Arminians don't like it because it demands the doctrine of predestination and because it demands the doctrine of particular redemption. Otherwise, sadly, unfortunately, known as limited atonement. People I have known throughout my pastoral ministry who don't like it tend to be people who believe in unlimited atonement. Because if you believe in the pactum, Jesus will lose none of them he gives himself for, a la John chapter 10. This is an interesting point, though. I hope all of these points have been interesting. Jacob Arminius believed in the covenant of redemption. Isn't that weird? I think he was pretty inconsistent about it. If even Jacob Arminius believes in the covenant of redemption, surely you can, right? How strange, how odd. Biblicists don't like it because they can't find the label in the Bible and they do theology by sola word searcha. Karl Barth didn't like it. He said it's mythology because he wants to make everything gracious and everything legal, and he doesn't understand uh, these things. Some dispensationalists don't like it because they've been told that it's the boogeyman because if you believe in the pactum, it means you believe in covenant theology, which is true. My favorite dispensationalists are those who believe in the pactum. So if you are a dispensationalist, let's be friends. Why can't we be friends? Or I'll sing to you. <laughs> But be like the dispensationalists who believe in the pactum. Don't be so afraid of the boogeyman who's actually your friend. One reason why dispensationalists don't believe in the pactum as well is because it's Christ-centered. 
all of Bible history is Christ-centered if the pactum's true, not Israel-centered. And in dispensationalism, it's Israel-centered. So we know there's something that happens before God created the heavens and the earth. We know something happens before Genesis. Therefore, when we read Genesis, we know there's a plan and a purpose that's already unfolding. And when we read Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy all the way to the book of Revelation, we know that the whole thing reflects God's pactum salutis. And so we can see anticipating Christ, looking forward to Christ, fulfilled in Christ. And that's a threat if your ultimate end game is the glory of Israel instead of Israel looking forward as a type and a shadow. So that's important. Don't be that person. Number 10, finally, we finally made it. Why this is important. The covenant of redemption is important because I already mentioned it. It relates to how you interpret the Bible. It's gonna help you interpret the Bible faithfully. I hope you all wanna interpret the Bible faithfully. I certainly do. If I know that there's something that is in place before time begins as I know it, and it has to do with Christ, it has to do with him being the redeemer, the exalted one who will unite all things, then I can read the Bible better. I can read the Bible better. So when I learn about Adam, when I learn about Noah, when I learn about Abraham, when I learn about Israel, when I learn about David, when I learn about all of these kinds of things, I can know that history is going somewhere and I can know that somehow it's leading to the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus. That's pactum sort of talk. Let me close with this. Closing with looking at the faithfulness of God in the pactum so it causes us to be motivated to do what's right, to believe what's right, to stand in awe of him. Ultimately, it's because of God and his faithfulness. Here's a great quotation from the Puritan Stephen Charnock, and it's very application-oriented, so I hope it helps encourage you. Fly to this covenant of redemption. Fly to this covenant of redemption. All other considerations of Christ's death, merit, and everything stored up in Christ can give us little hope unless we consider this covenant, which supports all the other stones of the building. Fly to it when your souls are in heaviness. Though there may be sometimes clouds upon the face of God, Yet consider those compassions of his heart when he struck his covenant with Christ. He covenanted to bruise his own son by his wrath while he promised to support him by his strength and the sounding of his affection always kept pace with the blows of his hand. The consideration of this will encourage our faintness, silence our fears, mystify our misgivings and settle a staggering faith. Is a believer in a storm? Here is an anchor to hold him. Is he sinking? Here is a branch to catch at. Is he pursued by spiritual enemies? Here is a refuge to fly to. Sin cannot so much as oblige God's justice to punish as his oath to Christ obliges him to save a repenting and believing sinner. And for our conference, his love cannot die as long as his faithfulness remains. 
nor his peace with the soul perish as long as the covenant with his son endures. This covenant of redemption is to be pleaded by us as well as the merit of Christ's death because the merit of his death is founded upon this compact, this covenant. Blessed be God for his faithfulness and may it motivate our faithfulness. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for our sessions. Thank you for the saints gathered here to be encouraged by these lectures, by these messages. Thank you for telling us more than we could ever possibly know apart from you sending your son into this world to provide a perfect redemption for us. It causes us to be in awe that you would do this for us. But we are so very thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.